the king would not come out of his chamber. For hours, he sat refusing to move a muscle. When he did move, he was extremely cautious. When his servants asked him what was wrong, he informed them that if he made one wrong move or if they bumped him, he might shatter into a million pieces. King Charles VI of France had what was known as the glass delusion. Most of the time, Charles was an active man. He was always outdoors, very physical. But from time to time, he would have spells in which he believed beyond a doubt that his body was not made of flesh and blood, but of fragile, breakable glass. And no one could convince him otherwise. He ordered his tailors to make clothes that were reinforced with iron bars so that he could protect his glass organs. He would surround his throne with cushioning in case he fell. He would lay all day on his soft bed surrounded by pillows wrapped in thick blankets. Why? Because he had a profound belief about who he was. It wasn't true, but he was so convinced of it that it affected everything that he did. Now, this is a a sad story and an extreme example, but it's not unlike the situations we find ourselves in. Yet we believe things that are profoundly untrue about ourselves. I'm worthless. God made a mistake when he made me. I'm only valuable if I perform, if I measure up to people's standards. I'm alone. God doesn't love me. Nobody loves me. I don't even think I'm lovable. I can never change. Can't come back from the things that I've done. I'm stuck. There's no hope for my situation. There's no hope for my future. And these beliefs, they affect how we live in profound ways. But here's the thing. Every one of them is as untrue as believing you are made of glass. We're currently in a series that we are calling True Self. That we're talking about the way we find out who we actually are. Because what we believe about our true self affects everything we do. So where do we look for our identity? Do we look inward and search our desires and our feelings to find out who we are? Do we look outward to the opinions of others or to our accomplishments? Or do we look upward and hear what God has to say about us? According to the New Testament book of Ephesians, our truest identity is found in the person of Jesus. What Jesus does determines who we are. So let's turn to the book of Ephesians now. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, second half of the chapter, starting in verse 15. This book is actually a letter. Uh, we're going to be reading someone else's mail here. It was written by a leader in the earth, uh, Jesus movement early on, uh, a guy named Paul, and he is writing to a group of churches, little churches, that are scattered around a big city called Ephesus. Uh, And in these verses, he is actually sharing a prayer that he prays for them. Uh, He loves these people so much, and he wants them to see, "This this is what I long for you, this is what I desire for you. So he actually gives an example of the kind of prayer he prays every day for the Ephesians. We're gonna read it. It starts by him simply thanking God for them. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. 
Then he goes on to share the things he asks for God, God for. I, I keep asking that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, this may sound weird to some of you, uh, but around here, we believe that when we read the words in this book, we are actually hearing the voice of God. So we like to thank God for that. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul's main prayer request here in Ephesians is that they would be enlightened. Enlightened. That, that word has a lot of connotations in our culture. Uh, when I was studying for this sermon, I was actually listening to uh, a Spotify playlist of uh, Beatles songs. And as I was studying this, a, a song from the White Album came on, which, of course, is the album that they wrote when they went to India to go meet with a guru and learn how to meditate and uh, find some enlightenment. And for a lot of us, when you hear that word, it sort of has that connotation of Eastern spirituality, uh, finding some kind of inner calm or union with the universe or searching for the divine within. But when you read that word in the Bible, that's not what it's talking about. It helps to understand what Paul's talking about by looking at some of the other phrases he used to describe what he's asking for. In verse 17, he prays that they would have wisdom, that they would have revelation. He prays for them to know certain things. Enlightenment in the Bible is about what you know, what you understand, what fills your mind. The phrase that I find most helpful here in this verse is in verse 18 when it's Paul prays about the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your heart. That's the key to the idea of enlightenment here. It's how you see the world, not, not just the, the visual things that you see, but how you interpret them, how you understand the situations you're in. This is a prayer about how you make sense out of your world. Let me give you an example. Let, let me show you this photo. Maybe some of you have seen this going around online uh, a while back. But look at this photo. I, I want to ask what you think is going on here. How many of you look at this and you see someone's legs covered in liquid or oil of some kind, kind of shiny? Okay? And you see that? Okay. What if I told you that these legs are not actually wet? What if I told you they just had streaks of white paint on them? Look at it again. You see it now? Okay, once you see the paint, it's really hard to see them the other way. Uh, this is what we're talking about when we talk about enlightenment. We are actually talking about the moment when the optical illusion shifts. The, the visual data is exactly the same, but your brain puts it together in a different way. It makes a new meaning out of it. Uh, Paul is praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would see your situations, your reality in a completely different way. A loss becomes an opportunity. A weakness becomes an asset. A critic becomes an ally. The same situation's going on out here, but your eye, the eyes of your heart see it differently. And so Paul is praying about three things that he knows, that if the eyes of our heart could see these things, it would change how we view everything in life. Let's look at the first one here. In verse 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What would happen 
if we could see the end of the story, the end of the story. Uh, When Paul uses the word hope here, he uses it a little bit different than the way we do in sort of everyday conversation. Uh, We might say things like, I hope the Americans win gold. I I hope that he asked me out. I hope that I get the job I applied for. And and these are things that we're not really certain are going to happen, but we'd like for them to happen. And so we say we hope for them. In the Bible, though, the word hope has much more confidence. It's a much more solid thing. God has promised that certain things will happen, that he will do certain things. And and so we know that they are for sure. They're certain, but they're not yet fulfilled. So when Paul is praying this, he's saying, I pray that you have the confidence to know that the future God is calling you into is secure. If if you could just see how the story ends, it would change everything. Uh, My wife and I are huge Harry Potter fans. Uh, We just love the wizarding world. Some of you are going to judge us for that, I know, uh, but it's, it's true. Uh, So July 21st of 2007 was a really big day for us. That was the day when the seventh book, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, was published. And uh, we got to hear the end of the story, how the war between Harry and Voldemort actually came to a conclusion. And we were actually on a walk with some friends when the package arrived from Amazon on our doorstep. We were walking through the neighborhood and we saw the package there and we said, See you guys, we're going to have to talk some other time. And we ran to the house, ripped open the package, and did not come out until we had read all 607 pages. Uh, We actually bought two copies of the book because we were not going to wait for the other person to finish. It's like, I I don't want anybody to spoil this for me, and I, I certainly don't want my spouse to spoil it. Like, that would be marital conflict, you know, terrible stuff. So the next day, uh, I finally emerge after reading the book, and I'm hungry. So I go to lunch, and I'm in line at a deli. There's maybe 20 people in line. And the guy behind me starts talking in a really loud voice, saying things like, Can you believe what happened to Dobby? Oh, when, when Harry finally talks to Dumbledore for the last time. Oh, in that chapter about Snape. And he starts giving away the entire ending of the series. And I I lucked out because I had already finished the book, but it was one day after the fact, and he was ruining all of these people once in a lifetime chance to hear the ending of Harry Potter. Uh, These days, uh, most people uh, have to work hard to avoid spoilers because everybody's posting their reaction to a movie or a book or a sports event online. And so we, we work hard to, you know, walk in without having to know the ending. But what's interesting is that psychologists have actually studied the effects of spoilers on people's enjoyment of stories. They actually took two groups of people, and they, with one group, they had them read a story, and they didn't tell them the ending. And with another group of people, they actually told them the ending and then had them read the story. And at the end, they rated their enjoyment of that story. And what they found is that, on average, the people with the spoilers enjoyed the story more than the people without them. They actually did another study where they did the same sort of thing, but instead of uh, surveying them at the end, they actually interrupted them in the middle of the story and said, how much are you enjoying the story so far? And the people who had the spoilers were actually enjoying the process of the story more than the people without the spoilers. So it turns out spoilers don't spoil, they enhance a story. Now, why is that? Uh, There are a number of factors, but it basically boils down to this. If you know how a story is going to end, you can make better sense of the details that lead up to that ending. You, you notice the right things. You, you appreciate what the author's doing. Uh, the, you you uh, figure out, you know, wh- how these things connect. And the story feels more meaningful and purposeful, even more beautiful, because you know how it's all going to come together. Now, this is not permission to be a jerk and just start telling people who don't want to know the end of a movie. Uh, but what this does tell us is something about our experience of the story that we're currently living in. Uh, knowing the end of the story really makes a difference. This is actually what the Bible is referring to when it talks about 
hope. It's the difference that knowing the end of God's story makes in our lives. It makes our story more meaningful, more purposeful, even more beautiful, because we know how it's all going to come together. Hope is what happens when you say, my present circumstances do not define me, but my future destination defines me. So what is this sure, certain future that God has promised us? There are four major things that God has told us, has, he said, will happen at the end of the story. Here's the first one. The first is the return of Christ. The return of Christ. Our hope is that the king is coming back. Jesus didn't go to heaven just so that he could stay there. He actually went to prepare to return. And won't that be an amazing moment? But won't it be incredible to see Jesus in person? I mean, what, what does he look like? I'm so curious. And I'll tell you this. All the worry that we have about is he good? Does he care about me? Is he actually in control? All of those fears are going to just melt away with one look at the expression on Jesus' face. We will see him for who he is, and our hearts will find the satisfaction we've been looking for. One day Christ will return. The second aspect of our future hope is this. It is the righting of wrongs. The righting of wrongs. When the king comes back, the first order of business is something the Bible calls judgment, which doesn't exactly sound like good news. It actually sounds like a terrifying situation. And it will be if you're on the wrong side of the judgment. But for all of us rebels who have accepted the king's offer of amnesty and forgiveness, this is actually going to be an exciting moment. Because for the first time in all of human history, we will get a fair and wise and completely trustworthy verdict on the things that have happened. All of the victims who no one believed or even listened to will be heard and affirmed. All of the injustices that were ignored or went unaddressed will be overturned and will be made right. All of the overlooked heroes who suffered for what was right but were ignored by everybody else will be elevated to the place of honor that they deserve. And here's the other thing. Rather than people yelling and tweeting and arguing to prove their point, every voice will finally be silenced. And we will get the definitive statement that this is good and this is bad. That this is true and this is false. That this is beautiful and this is offensive. And that is very good news. It's what our hearts long for, even if we don't realize it. We long for the righting of wrongs. Third aspect of our hope is this, the resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body. When Jesus rose from the dead, he did not just come back to life. He actually went through death and came out on the other side, never to die again. And he didn't come back as a, a ghost or a spirit. He came with, back with a recreated, physical, tangible body. And when Jesus returns, everybody who's been united with him will receive a new body, a physical body, just like his. Our bodies will no longer suffer from the disease and the disability and the decay that plagues us now. All of the pain will be gone and done forever. We will be whole like Jesus. We wait for the resurrection of the body. The, the last thing that God has promised to bring about is this, is the renewal of the world. The renewal of the world. God is not done with planet earth. Uh, this is one of the things that a lot of people misunderstand about the, the teaching of Christianity. Uh, our hope is that one day God, not that one day God will whisk us to a faraway paradise in another dimension separate from here. But our hope is actually that this world, this physical universe will be transformed and renewed. The, the story of the Bible actually ends not with all of us going up to heaven, but with heaven actually coming down to us. Earth becomes heaven. 
When Jesus raises us from the dead, we are going to live the rest of eternity in a recreated world, having a physical human life, living the way life was meant to be lived. These four things are the way the story ends. This is the hope of our calling. So here's a question I have for you. If the eyes of our hearts were enlightened to this reality, how would that change the expectations, the experience that we have for here and now? I think for one thing, it might change what you're ambitious for. There might be some things that seem really important here and now, but aren't all that important in light of forever. It might make you more courageous. If you know that good and right are going to be vindicated, regardless of how people respond here, you're going to be more willing to stand up and say, hey, this is right, this is wrong. Because one day Jesus is going to say, well done. It might change your experience of suffering here. The present moment may still be painful, but the future might give you strength to endure that you know that justice and healing and joy are actually coming and they will never go away. How would your experience of the present change if you could see the end of the story? Let's look at the second thing that Paul prays for. Paul prays that we would see the value of the church, the value of the church. Uh, Look again at verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Uh, Most of the time when the Bible uses the word inheritance, it's usually talking about something that God gives to his people, to his, his children. In the Old Testament, usually the word inheritance is referring to the promised land that he gave to his people Israel. Uh, in the New Testament, the word inheritance kind of gets expanded from just the promised land to actually what we're talking about, the, the recreated world, the new heavens and the new earth. That is our inheritance as God's people. But there are a few places where it's not just talking about what God gives to his children, but there's actually places where it talks about God receiving an inheritance, which is kind of a cra- crazy image if you think about it, because uh, God doesn't have parents that are going to leave him money or land or something like that. But the idea, the image, the metaphor is basically trying to say that God has come into possession of something and is something that is really valuable to him. What is that possession? The answer is pretty amazing. God's inheritance is us. It's his people. Let me give you one example from the Old Testament. 1 Kings 8, King Solomon prays this prayer and he's talking about Israel. And he says, they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt. You singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance. Israel was God's inheritance in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Paul applies the term to anybody, whether they're Jewish or whether they're Gentile, to say anybody who puts their trust in Jesus becomes God's inheritance. In other words, the church is God's inheritance. These days, when people use that word church, most of the time what they refer to is a location. Talk about a building. They say, I'm going to go to the church for something. I'm going to, you know, there's a church building over there. Uh, But in the New Testament, in the Bible, the word church is never used to refer to a building. And the reason for that is they didn't have church buildings back then. Uh, The word church always refers to the people, to the community. And not just kind of random separate individuals, but this gathered family of God. It's interesting. In Greek, they actually have two words for the word you. Uh, Like many languages, Spanish, French, uh, they have both a singular and a plural you. Uh, So when you read the word you in the Bible, you got to ask, is this referring to an individual or is it referring to a group? And in Paul's letters, almost without exception, Paul uses the plural you. So when you read verses like this, they should be translated something like this. I keep asking God that he'd give all y'all 
a spirit of wisdom. I pray that all y'all may know the hope to which he has called all y'all. Okay, I just got to let you know. Uh, last night I preached this message and I, I just said y'all. And some people from the south informed me that y'all can be used singularly. And so if you want to be plural, you have to say all y'all. Okay, so I stand corrected. The, the reason this is important is because for most of us, our, our sense of religion and spirituality, we, we picture it as a private thing. It's between me and God. But the Bible never talks about it that way. It, it always talks about, it talks about personal relationships with God, but it talks about it in the context of a community that is also seeking God. When you read the Bible and you figure out what God is trying to do in the world, it's not that God's saving random separate individuals, but what he's doing is drawing all those people into a community. So you get things like this. God is forming a body, not just collecting a bunch of body parts, which is a really gross image if you think about it. God is building a temple, not just making a pile of bricks. You become a citizen of heaven. And what that means is when you become a citizen of a country, you don't just get a king, you get the other fellow citizens. You get the rest of the country. God is adopting us into his family. But when you get adopted, you don't just get a father, you get brothers and sisters. Jesus came to form a community, to create a people. The inheritance that God receives is the church. So what does God think about the church? What does God think about his inheritance? Look at the words that the verse uses. Paul prays that we know the riches of God's glorious inheritance. The, uh, Michelle and I, we don't have any truly wealthy relatives. So when our grandparents died, they left behind things like grandma's spoon collection or, or grandpa's neckties that he had been wearing since the 70s. Uh, not things that are, are particularly value in and of themselves. Maybe they have sentimental value, but nothing that was of real worth. But God's inheritance, when he looks at us, it's more like getting a collection of vintage cars or rare paintings or, or beachfront property. It's something you say, wow, that's incredible. It is rich and it's glorious. He's excited to receive it. We are valuable to him. He prizes us. Now, this is a really important question. Why? Why does God prize us like that? Because it's not because of something that we've done. I'll tell you that. It's not because we've earned it. God is not looking at us saying, wow. Those people are impressive. If I could just uh, have them as my own, that would really do something for me. That would elevate things for me. In some ways, it's the opposite that's true. And he, he sees the mess that we've made of things. We, we don't have a great track record. The, the church is not some elite club of moral and spiritual champions. We're as riddled with sin and weakness and failure as everybody else. So why does he value us? There's this old saying that I think sums it up so well. God doesn't love us because of who we are. God loves us because of who he is. He doesn't love us because of who we are. He loves us because of who he is. This is the unique revolutionary message of Christianity. God is love. And what that means is God doesn't do what we do. He doesn't go looking for someone who's particularly lovable and says, well, I'm going to love that person. He chooses to love someone, and that love actually makes that person lovable. Uh, to put it another way, he doesn't love us because we're valuable. We are valuable because he loves us. But it doesn't stop there because there's more to why he values us. He, he values us also because he knows what he is making us into. You see, God loves us right where we are, but he, he loves us enough not to leave us where we are. To, he wants to take us where we need to be. And so God sees where the church will be one day. And when he's done with us, he knows that we will perfectly reflect his glory and his beauty and his holiness and his goodness and his love and his justice. 
We will look like Jesus. And so God looks at that and says, that is valuable. That is a treasure. That is a prize to me. Friends, I I want you to look around you. Look look at the people that are sitting near you. And I'm going to tell you something that you do not believe. You are currently sitting among the most glorious beings that have ever existed or ever will exist. You, You are sitting among some of the most glorious beings that have ever existed or ever will exist. The person sitting in the row behind you who is singing off-key during worship, if you're over there, that's me, okay? The awkward person who corners you for a conversation in the lobby, every curmudgeon, every plain vanilla suburban family who goes to a church like ours, every person who is here and can't seem to get their act together, every struggling addict, every person just trying to rebuild their relationships, Everybody just trying to make ends meet. Every person paralyzed by depression or anxiety. Every person sidelined by illness or injury. Every person, no matter how broken they look or how ordinary or overlooked they might be right now, these people who claim the name of Jesus will one day be the most awe-inspiring creatures you have ever encountered. These are the sons and daughters of God. We are the royal family of heaven. Now, I've been around the church a long time uh, and been around long enough to know how disappointing and frustrating and messy life in a church community can be. Uh, Sometimes the problem is that the church just feels kind of ordinary sometimes. Like like you look at the world and you feel like all the important and exciting things are happening with, with some other movement, some other institution. People are doing these great things out there and this is just what it is. But when we get to the end of the story, we are gonna discover something that seems crazy right now. We will discover that this family, this community is at the center of the world's story. But when when it's all said and done, we will see that the most important institution in human history is not any nation or empire or corporation or market or military force. That the most significant movement of people in history will be the church of Jesus Christ. And, And I know that's hard to believe, but that's why Paul prays the prayer that he does. He prays that the eyes of our heart would actually see what is true, the incredible value God has placed in his people, the church. You know what happens when we see that, when we start to see God's commitment and value to the church, we start to have that same value and commitment to the church as well. It's the reason we gather like this week after week. It's why we serve together. It's why we become members of churches. It's one of the reasons we get baptized even. In just a few weeks, we're going to be having baptism in all of our services, and we're going to be baptizing a whole bunch of people. And you know what baptism symbolizes? First and foremost, it symbolizes the fact that we are united with Christ. But when we go down into the water, it symbolizes that his death was for our sins. When we come up out of the water, it symbolizes that his resurrection was for our new life. We are, are united. We belong to Jesus. But it's not just a sign that we belong to Jesus. It's also a sign that we belong to Jesus' people. It's the initiation ceremony. It's the the thing that gets us into the family of God. We're not just united with God, but also to God's people. And if you haven't been baptized as an adult before, make this the time. Make it happen. This weekend at all four of our campuses, we've got baptism classes going on. So you can still do this. If you want to be baptized, you don't even have to register for that. You can just show up and say, Clayton sent me, and we'll make sure that you get baptized in a few weeks. But make this the time when you publicly commit to Jesus and to his people, the church. There's the question. How would it change things if you could see the value God has for his people? Here's the last thing. 
How would it change things if you could see the king of the world? If you could see the king of the world. Uh, Look at verse 19. Uh, Paul's final prayer request starts off uh, simple enough. He prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Uh, So he's praying that we would know God's incredible power, which, you know, straightforward enough. But then he elaborates on what that power means for five verses, and it gets a little wordy. So we're going to try to unpack this here. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms. Uh, This verse is talking about an event that uh, a lot of us don't really know what to do with. It's an event called the Ascension of Jesus. It's the moment, uh, 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, when Jesus goes back to heaven. Uh, And actually, the Ascension, believe it or not, is one of the most important things Jesus ever did. It's right up there with his incarnation, when he becomes a human. It's up there with his crucifixion, when he dies for our sins. It's up there with the resurrection, when he defeats death. Uh, The Ascension is actually the culmination, the finishing of all of those events. But if you're like me, a lot of times you look at this and you wonder... Why in the world did he do that? Like, why did he leave? It actually seems kind of like a dumb move. Okay, if you ask me, I'm not one to criticize Jesus' strategy, but, you know, if he asked, I mean, he just finished the deal. He conquered sin and death. He's sending his followers out, announce the good news, tell everybody everywhere what I did, and he leaves. Like, why would you take your best player off the field at the most crucial play of the game? Here's the thing. I don't think when Jesus ascended, he was leaving the game. What he was actually doing was going to the most strategic, most important, most influential place he could go. He he wasn't just taking a place, uh, uh, taking a break so he could uh, come back to work later. He was actually going to the throne of the universe. He he was going to the place of ultimate power. That's what it means when this verse says he was seated at the right hand. That's not some sort of secondary place. That's a position of shared authority. The the right-hand position, it's a a throne next to the throne. It means you're wielding the same authority as the person who puts you on that throne. That's the reason, in verse 21, it goes on to say this. That sitting there puts him far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Now, here's an interesting fact about the throne that Jesus is sitting on. The reason Jesus gets to sit on that throne is not because he is God. It's actually because he is the perfect human being. Let me explain. Uh, On the first page of the Bible, God appoints Adam and Eve, the first humans, to be the king and the queen of the world. Their job is to rule God's world on God's behalf. That's why God made human beings. And so that throne at the right hand of God is actually the throne God set up for Adam to sit on. But what happened? One of God's angels, the devil, decided that he was going to rebel against God. And what he wanted to do was take over the world. So what do you do when you want to take over uh, the world? You actually have to get the king of the world off the throne. So the serpent sneaks into the garden and he tricks King Adam and Queen Eve. And what they were supposed to do is put the serpent in its place. Put the serpent right under their feet. But instead, they choose to join the rebellion. And the rest is history. And since then, the throne at God's right hand has been vacant. And what that means is since then, all of the rebellious spiritual forces have been running amok in our world. That's what the verse is referring to when it talks about all rule and authority, power and dominion. Those are words that in the first century people used all the time to talk about the spiritual forces of evil that were behind the scenes of things. The forces that were pulling the strings behind human history. 
They were the forces that influenced human beings, tempted them, and, and, and harmed them. They're also the forces that got behind human systems to corrupt governments and religions and economies and cultures. In the Old Testament, they use uh, some imagery for these evil spiritual forces. They describe them uh, like these fierce, ferocious beasts. If you read the book of Daniel, uh, they describe the, the spiritual power behind all of these empires that were sweeping through the world. And, and they're these terrifying images. At one point in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees this vision of these four beasts that represent these four empires, Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. And as they're, 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 they're making all this noise and they're uh, causing all this damage, he then sees an incredible thing, a human being. He says, one like the son of man. And if you've read through the gospels, you know Jesus talks about himself as the son of man. One like the son of man, the true human being, ascending on the clouds of heaven, approaching the ancient of days, which is a name for God. And when God sees this man approaching, he gives him a seat on the throne. He gives him all authority and glory and power. He gives him an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed, it says. And so what Paul is saying here is that that prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, which means all of those rebellious spiritual forces are now answerable to him. They're, they're still running amok, but he is reining them in. He is, he is calling them to task. He is the new Adam, and now he gets to start crushing some snakes under his feet. Which is the reason, verse 22 says this. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. When I read this, I, I try to think about these little house churches that first got this letter. They're in this big city of Ephesus. It's a, a major city, one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, a religious political center of power. And, and these churches, it was the lar one of the larger churches in the world at the time, but it still was just a, a few dozen groups of people meeting in, in living rooms and dining rooms in people's homes. That They had no idea what the Jesus movement would become. They, they couldn't imagine a church with thousands of people gathered over four locations like ours. Uh, much less uh, those churches being down the street from other churches with hundreds of people and churches with tens of thousands of people and churches in every city and churches in every country in the world. They could not fathom a movement of billions of people over 2,000 years. They were a minority group on the margins of their society. The authorities were suspicious of them. Their, their neighbors thought they were crazy. But from an earthly perspective, they had basically zero power. But Paul is praying. He's saying, I want you to see a different reality. That you are united with the guy who is sitting in the place of ultimate power. And the forces of evil are under his feet. And he's using his power, it says in verse 22, for the sake of the church. You, you are not marginal, he is saying. You, you are not weak. You are his. And that's incredible. So here's a question for us. How would we see our lives differently if we could see that reality. Ask yourselves these questions. This is uh, for real. How, do you, how would you view power differently if this were the case? I mean, who, who do you think is actually more powerful? A Supreme Court justice or the little old lady who gets up every morning at 6 a.m. to pray? Who, who has more influence? A billionaire CEO or the shy seventh grader who talks to God as she walks through the halls of her school? Who has more of an inside track? The lobbyist in Congress or the poor refugee who is crying out for God to rescue him and his family. There will come a day when we will see that the real movers and shakers on the world scene are not the rich 
or the strong or the smart. The, the real power is with the poor and the downtrodden and the helpless who had enough faith to cry out to the one who is really on the throne. Now, I'll be honest here. As I prepared this point in the message, I had a really hard time. Because it's, it's really inspiring to say God has all the power. Jesus is on the throne. He can do anything that he wants. And he's using that power for the church. But I'll tell you, the last couple of weeks, I have heard so many stories, really hard stories, of people who are going through tough stuff. Someone in my community group going through a messy divorce. Friends and family who have received cancer diagnosis in the last couple of weeks. Friends whose family members are going through untreatable chronic pain and they don't know what to do. That people finding out that their kids have special needs. At one point, Michelle and I, we got to the end of the day and we just sat down on the couch and we, we were saying to each other, we said, well, I, we know it says that God is powerful, but how do you believe something like that when th these things are going on? Like, why isn't he doing something in these situations? And it's hard. How, how do you apply a, a verse like this to someone in a hard situation? Because there are a lot of people who look at this and they'll say things like, you know, the king has all the power and so no friend of a king should suffer. So you can expect God to, to heal you and to uh, intervene in your problems and to deliver you from whatever you're going on. You can be victorious because you are united to the king. There's like a kernel of truth in there, but that cannot be what this means. Here's why. Look at the life of the guy who wrote this letter. In a couple of chapters, we're going to find out that Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's in chains. And the other things that he went through, he was in shipwrecks, he was beaten, he went hungry, he was betrayed. It was a hard life. At one point, uh, Paul is suffering from a physical ailment, something he calls a thorn in the flesh. And we don't know the details of it, but it sure sounds like some kind of chronic pain or illness. And, and he begs God three times to take it away, and each time God says, no. And what God says instead is he says, my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough for you. It's enough for you not by getting you out of the pain, but actually in the pain. In Philippians, uh, the, another book that Paul wrote, he, he writes something similar to this Ephesians passage where he says, I, I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. But here's how the sentence ends. It says, and I want to know the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. For Paul, knowing Christ's resurrection power does not mean being exempted or escaping suffering. God's power does not look the way we think it will. This is hard, but it's true. God's power looks like what happened to Jesus. It is the power that raised Christ from the dead. But it's not the power that helped Christ avoid being killed in the first place. God's power does not work around suffering. God's power works in suffering and through suffering and with suffering. So, so what does that mean for those of us who are in pain right now, who could really use some of this mighty strength in our situation? What does this have to say? Here's what I would tell you. Fix your eyes on the one who is on the throne. Fix your eyes on the one who is on the throne because I, I, I cannot tell you why he is allowing things to happen in your life the way they are, but I can tell you this. He understands. He, he knows. He knows what it means to truly suffer. That, that's how he got his power. He was crucified. And if the guy on the cross is the guy on the throne, that's someone you can trust. I, I promise you he is not ignoring you. 
that he went through hell to win you. And if it feels like you are going through hell right now, he knows he, he is there. I promise he will not put you in a situation that he knows will destroy you. Please hold on to hope, even if it's a defiant hope. And all you can do is cry out and say, God, why? What are you waiting for? Do something. Do it. Cry out. Dare to believe that God is actually powerful, that he really does love you, and that your story is not over. It's not over. But, but this verse has something important to say, not just to those who are in suffering and pain right now. It actually has something to say to the rest of us who are around people who are in pain and difficult situations. And remember that this verse says that God uses his power. Jesus' power is for the church. It works through the church. This passage is saying to the rest of us, do not avoid the hard situations in people's lives around you just because they're hard. That if you see the king on the throne, you can never say, you can never say, you know what, there's no good I can do. There's nothing I can do to help. You know, my, my efforts aren't gonna amount to anything. They won't make a difference. What's the use in praying for someone? I can't make uh, any changes here. No, God has given Jesus all the authority. He has placed everything under his feet, which means your simple efforts to love people in pain around you can make a tremendous impact. As some of us, we act like we are made of glass. That if we pick up someone else's burdens, it's gonna shatter us. That we're gonna be crushed if we get involved in a situation. That those problems are too much for me, I'm too weak. And so what do we do? We wrap ourselves up and we don't move and we never take a risk. But, but that's the point of Paul's prayer here. He, he wants to see the reality of your life. You are not fragile. You are united with Christ. You, you, you have access to his authority and power, which means you can jump in and you can love people and you can serve people and you can take a risk and you can bear burdens because of the eyes of your heart know who's on the throne. You see the king of the world and you can love people the way he does. Now, I would love for all of us to have this prayer answered in our lives, that we would have the eyes of our heart enlightened to see the end of the story and the value of the church and the king of the world. And that would change things for us. But here's the hard part. You, you know these things with your mind, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's clicked with your heart. Which again is the reason why Paul is saying, I'm praying for this in your life. So here's what I wanna leave you with. It's a question. Who are you praying for like this in your life? Who, who in your life are you saying, I'm not just gonna pray for your circumstances. I'm gonna pray for your spiritual health. I'm gonna pray for your understanding of what God's doing. Do you have people that you're consistently praying for in this way? If you're in a family, I believe it's a calling for everybody in a family to say, I'm going to pray for my parents. I'm going to pray for my kids. I'm going to pray for my spouse. I'm going to pray for my brothers and sisters like this about their spiritual life. Are you praying for your friends like this? Do you, do you, do you pray for them day in and day out and say, I'm going to lift them up that they would know what is true about them? And if you do that, have you ever told them that you do that? How, how encouraging would it be for people to hear, I, I'm your friend and I pray for your life like this? Here's the flip side of that question. Do you have people that will pray for you like this? I've already told you that we as your pastors pray for you like this uh, all the time. But do you have people uh, close to you in your life that you would say, man, they're, they're, they're the person that I know has got my back. And if you don't have someone like that, have the awkward conversation and say, hey, would you be someone who, who would pray for me day in and day out, not just about my circumstances, but about my spiritual life. How incredible would it be if everybody in our church was praying for someone and had someone praying for, for them in this way? I'd love to see how that, how that plays out in our life. 
Well, we are going to sing one final song today. It's the song in Christ alone. And I I think it, it captures the heartbeat of this series perfectly, that our identity, our hope is in Jesus and what he's done for us. As we do that, we're going to collect our gifts and our offerings as an expression of gratitude to God. But before we do that, let me pray. God, this is what we ask. That you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see the end of the story. That we would see the value you've placed on the church. And that we would see most clearly of all, your son, the king of the world, who is ruling on our behalf. And it's his name we pray. Amen.